0: mirror moment I think it's because I felt like I could lose even more than I've already lost um, and this moment of reflection where I kind of get, stopped giving myself a hard time stopped grieving for my former self started to embrace how I was feeling acknowledge that I had I was suffering with depression and I and I probably had PTSD and that was the biggest moment for me was that moment because I started then to learn about myself, learn from what had happened to me, started to talk, started to talk to my loved ones, started to tell them how I was actually feeling and and actually that changed me massively and, and it was one of the biggest moment that was that that mirror moment that I had it was huge for me because it, it started a a process for me and then of kind of starting to drag myself out of this pit that I found myself in.
1: Brian Hartley here from Always Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to the interview sessions where I put my curious questions to inspiring human beings. Here at Always Better Than Yesterday, we believe in helping good people like you become someone you love, do more of what you love, and serve those that you love. We genuinely believe a world with more heart-centered leaders will be able to meet people where they are, And leave them better. Our families, our teams, our communities will become better from the inside out through the power of good people like you leading with your heart. These interview sessions are brought to you by our great friends at Web Creation. Head to webcreationgroup.com for stunning websites at sensible prices. Today I am joined by a very special guest, a friend of mine from my time at Wiltshire Police. I am joined by former Detective Sergeant Nick Bailey. I had the the privilege of working alongside Nick when he had a role within the staff office at headquarters at Wiltshire, so I got to know Nick a little bit. And unfortunately Nick was involved in an incident um, back in 2018 that I won't say too much about now. I'd love for you to hear that specifically from Nick, but it's an incredible story of overcoming adversity, not just for himself, but his family. I was a little bit nervous going into this conversation because I really wanted to do Nick and his story justice. I try and ask those meaningful questions that really help you get to the heart and the mind behind Nick and to really Here's some things that if implemented in your own life will leave you a little bit better than you were yesterday. I'm Ryan Hartley. I am the founder of always better than yesterday based here in Wiltshire in England, we have a Facebook community full of like hearted, like-minded people from all around the world. If you're not part of our community and you'd like somewhere just to go uh, a good corner of the internet and hopefully leave a little bit better our time together i hope will always help you in some way if that's what you want if that's what you need come and join us and uh, come and enjoy the wonderful people that are there and on our youtube and our podcast too that's enough from me you're all here to hear from former detective sergeant nick bailey here he is enjoy the next 45 minutes my friends always love Nick, welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast, my friend. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, Ron. How are you? I'm really well. I'm really well. It wouldn't take our our listeners too long just to Google your name and see a uh, a bunch of stuff on the internet. But before they do that, I'd love to give you the freedom of introducing yourself in the way that you would like to do so.
0: Oh, that's very kind. Okay, Uh, so I uh, am an ex-police officer with Wiltshire Police and I did uh, uh, 18 years, just short, a couple of months short of 18 years in the police. Um, And uh, in 2018, I got caught up with the assassination attempts on Sergei Skripal, the Russian uh, ex-double agent. Been released as part of a international spy swap and, and decided to set up home in Salisbury, which we didn't know about at the time. And so I uh, yeah, I was on duty the day that that event happened and as a result got rather ill because I got poisoned with a nerve agent and, uh, and uh, then things just started to kind of spiral out of control after that. And uh, as a result of that, I was uh, released from my duties in the police back last year i was deemed incapable of being a police officer so i was medically medically pensioned off so uh, yeah it was uh been a bit of a weird few years for me really and for my family as well but um so to come out the other side of it now it's, take, it's taken a while there's no blueprint for how long it should take but uh, yeah. you just kind of go along and see where
1: it takes you ride the wave and then just start to try and come out the other side i think and that's what we're, we're starting to do I'm really grateful that you're going to spend some time with us and, and share part of your story, and I'm just really grateful. And um, your, your yours and I paths crossed whilst you were working at headquarters. Yeah. I think the things we both had in common is that we both had no idea what we were doing. We- <laughs> oh <laughs> no, like, I was um,
0: <laughs> I was, th- I, was th- I was hoping you were going to bring this up because I was going to say you will remember me from being in the staff office when I was. It was obvious that I had literally no idea what I was doing. Um, and I didn't try to kind of hide that really I I, but I just muddled my way through with comedy and making myself look like a clown in it and it seemed to work (laughs) for a couple of years but I never thought for one second Ryan that you didn't know what you're doing you always seem to be very on top of what you what your portfolio was so speak
1: quickly with (laughs) confidences but um, from you know that people will know from my background in the police I dealt with data and analytics and and demand and you know on a Sunday in March in Salisbury is like the quietest our county would ever be yeah and yet talk talk to us about the events of Sunday 4th of March 2018 okay. take us through that day if, if you will
0: yeah of course so it was for me it was a normal as you say normal one would be quiet Sunday evening I was a DS detective sergeant in the CID in Salisbury, had a team of five DCs, went in to do a normal Sunday evening shift, starting at three, was meant to finish at 12 in the morning. And after a couple of hours of doing the usual stuff, I was reviewing, a, I think I was reviewing a case at the time for a colleague of mine, just had a, a call on the radio, there was a couple of people were found slumped, kind of semi-conscious, and I think it was described that they were kind of heavily salivating, they were on a bench in the city centre. And so I was just listening to this. It's not something that the CID would would get in, would get involved in immediately. It could have been a whole host of th- possibilities. It Could be alcohol, drugs, overdose. It could have been a, a medical emergency. But I was just listening away, and, and officers were going down to to assess the the scene and what was going on. And I just thought, you know what, I'm a little bit bored of what I'm doing at the moment. I'm a bit of a nosy bugger at the best of times. So I thought I'll uh, I'll have a wander down and and see if I can help in any way. I wasn't going down to take over. I didn't need to do that. It was being managed brilliantly by the, um, the the response team, the duty sergeant. I just thought I'll go down and just just have a look and just see what it's all about. Because if it turns into something that we need to be involved in, I'd rather know about it from the very beginning than play catch up. So we went down there. The uh, oh, sorry, I went down there. The two patients had already been taken away by paramedics. The scene itself was normal. There was there was nothing there to suggest what had happened. Uh, I kind of hung around for a bit, tried to tried to make myself useful, uh, spoke to a few people in the local area to see if they knew anything that, that had happened, went back to the bench, saw that we had uh, the one of the patients who we now know to be Sergei Skripal, his coat was there with a wallet and in his wallet was a driver's license with his home address which was Salisbury and it kind of went from there really, we, we you know, for quite a few hours, well for, for probably 24 hours we didn't actually know what happened to them but um I didn't couldn't do anything, couldn't do anything at the scene, so I made my way back up to the station, but, but carried on helping with it, just couldn't do anything there and then. And it kind of progressed from there throughout the evening. Um uh, and I remember vividly um how we found out and when we found out who he was, and then the significance of the fact that he'd become ill. Um, I was talking to the duty inspector about all the different scenes that we had. We had his, his car, which was parked up locally in a car park. We had the bench, we had his house. And as we were discussing the house, about going into the house, a colleague of mine who had literally Googled his name, that's all she did was Google his name. I'll never a forget it. She said, Sarge, you're going to need to come and see this. And uh, I went over, looked over her shoulder, and there was a picture of Sergei Scripple. It was a photo from a newspaper article. Uh, it was a picture of him effectively behind bars. And the... The, the heading or the subheading was explaining that he'd been he was a he was a Russian ex-spy who'd been released as part of an international spy swap and obviously at this point the severity of what we could be dealing with we still didn't know it could have still been a medical emergency a medical emergency nothing for the police but the severity and the suddenly the possibilities of what this what this could mean hit the roof as you can imagine so uh yeah and it just progressed from there it suddenly became a bit of a whirlwind of rushing about you know briefing the chain of command briefing crime scene uh, investigators and the crime scene management team briefing superintendents the control room um and as the evening progressed uh one of the uh sios the senior investigating officers who was on call he came down to kind of take take charge of the of what was going on and when he got here got to the station it's decided that we needed to to go into the house um which we talked about doing for a couple of hours but one reason or another we, we didn't do it we just needed to, to make sure the scene was secure but we needed to go into the house to see if there's anybody else there firstly um, and also see if it was a crime scene see if there was a crime we didn't know again like i said before and i'll keep saying that, that we we didn't know that it was a crime um uh, and so we had to borrow ppe from the fire station because Salisbury all hill police stations we share the, the building with the council we sure didn't we have any it back yeah, no, they didn't. Um, so yeah, we had to borrow some some PPE from the the fire station, uh, and uh, three of us went to the house, put on our PPE. So we had full forensic suits, overshoes, latex gloves, masks, goggles. I took the key from the officer who was guarding the address, unlocked the door, and went in. And then it was at that point, unknowingly, that my glove that was now saturated in nerve agent. I didn't know that until. Quite a while down the line and that was the case because we didn't know what, how it had happened until quite some time after all this. But we went walked around, went into the house, all very normal, nothing suspicious. There was no one there. Uh did what we needed to do, checking it and then and then left. Um up to the hospital after that to, to get an update on the patients and there wasn't one. Um, back to the station to write up a handover for the oncoming shift, which was a very long handover, as you can imagine. Mm. Um, and I left about seven in the morning the following so the monday morning and, and at that point i remember feeling very i felt felt odd i felt very very tired like exhausted tired and and i was sweating and my i remember looking in the mirror at the police station and my my pupils were like pinpricks but like all this i just put down to you know what's been a really stressful long shift Um, one of the worst ones I'd ever done in terms of kind of like trying to manage this situation Mm. and 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 the potential of what it could be we had to kind of consider and it was was a long stressful shift Um, but I I put it down to just I'm just tired that's all it is Mm. and went home Monday morning had a few hours sleep got woken up with a phone call from work asking me about the events of the night before By afternoon, I was starting to feel, I was still feeling the same, just slightly worse and decided to go to the hospital to get checked up, which I did, went up to A&E, they checked my vitals, everything seemed fine, they couldn't account for my tiny pupils, but I kind of had this sense of relief, I was like, you know what, they've told me I'm all right, so it must just be something normal, you know, and uh, went back home again, had a very normal evening, went to bed, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and then things started to go Rapidly downhill for me, really. I mean, I can only really describe that night as incredibly restless. Um, I had uh, like nightmares. I just uh, kind of like hallucinations. I don't know if you saw the the drama uh, where Rafe Spall, uh, he plays me in the drama, which is really odd to have somebody like Rafe Spall playing me, um, but he was uh, shown in the in the drama as being able to see fire in front of his eyes, and and it was literally that. Like it was like a it was like a tsunami of fire um like it's almost like the surface of the sun that's how I would describe it and it was, and it was so real I could like I could feel the heat off it and mm. woke up about five in the morning absolutely drenched in sweat really unsteady on my feet stumbled downstairs to get a glass of water my, my vision was completely impaired I it was um not smooth motion of eyes it was kind of like a still frames juddering as I was looking around as opposed to it being really really smooth looking around um Managed to stumble back upstairs. I then threw up in the toilet, threw up again, and it was at this point I became terrified because this is mm. this was not right. Something mm. was wrong, um, and went back to hospital. Phoned ahead, went back to hospital, um, into A sh- and E. Got and I had many tests in A and E. Lot of blood tests, lots of doctors, consultants, nurse nurses were kind of milling around me at this point in the side room in A and E, and then I was told you have. You have nerve agent in your bloodstream, and you need to stay. Initially, I was told you've got to stay here for 24 to 48 hours, and we'll give you the antidote for it, and we'll just see how you go. But that kind of 24 to 48 hours turned into 17 days because I was taken to ICU, and that's when I was told by a consultant you have a nerve agent called Novichok in your in your system, something that I'd never heard of, something that most people have never heard of, and yeah, and it kind of. Just went from there, really. And then a whole host of traumatic events and stresses yeah. came
1: after. What is um, what is Novichok? What effect does it have? Um, it's very difficult.
0: People ask me uh, what's it like to be poisoned with a nerve agent or, or, or what effect does it have? It's very difficult for me to distinguish because as well as the physical symptoms I had, I had so much... Uh, Emotional and kind of mental stresses going on. I can't. I, sometimes I can't distinguish between the two. I, I, I. It was making me feel sick. My heart was flying. My my vision was impaired. Um. And but it's like I say, it's really difficult to to explain it. Um. Navalny, Alexei Navalny described it perfectly once, because obviously he was poisoned as well mm-hmm. some uh, a while ago. And when he was able and he recovered, he was able to talk about it and he he explained it perfectly. He said it's uh he basically said that it's not you you know something's wrong with you um it doesn't hurt necessarily you know something's wrong and then after a while basically it gets to a point where you think that's it i'm i'm going to die Mm. um and that's kind of it it's 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 not really something that you feel it just feels like it's taking your it feels like it's taking your life away from you and it's just Mm. you feel like it's only a matter of time before i kind of slip into a coma and then, and then go and that's that's how I felt it was very scary very scary place to be along with everything else that was going on as well because yeah. obviously it wasn't just a a normal injury at work it was it became a a global story and all that obviously all the political ramifications and it became huge and so my family were dealing with that as well as I as well as, well as me and, and and it so it, so it wasn't just the injury it was everything else that came with it
1: one thing I found really difficult to watch was the way that the media was just using your image as a the hero cop, you know, the hero Yeah, cop and, I, I had a massive problem with that. Yeah, and you referred to that and in your kind of statement as you left hospital, you know, you didn't consider you're not a hero and that you were just doing a job that you loved. Like, what, what's your take on that time and the way that the media was blowing up around it? <laughs> The media were relentless
0: when when it was found obviously that the, the story broke about Sergey and his daughter Yulia having been poisoned and there was also discussion that a police officer had been taken critically Ill as well and, and they were relentless in trying to find out who that person was so the police decided to take control of that which was which was understandable and, and put my name out there and I kind of shut off at that point because we kind of felt suddenly we weren't anonymous anymore we weren't private our, our lives were being almost played out internationally um and it's not something that we ever kind of wanted to happen so it was very difficult to deal with that and then to to hear and see these articles and these stories about local hero poison with critically or poison with novichok I was like I, I'm I'm not I, I I really it sounds silly but I really took offense to being called a hero I really I couldn't stand that because I, I was like I'm, I'm not I'm not I've not done anything heroic I, I did my job like we all do and you know there's always a risk in the police in the emergency services there's always that risk that you're going to become injured to you. something's going to happen to you but um obviously you don't prepare yourself for something like this but there's always that risk but I don't think any police officer or any anybody in the emergency services would would consider themselves heroes it's that kind of it's, it's a job that you do and and I, and I really found that difficult. I really wanted to put the story straight as well I didn't want people to think that I considered myself a hero because I really really didn't and um, that's why I wanted to you know we, I made that statement when I was um, let out of discharge from hospital to say I'm not I'm a normal cop that did my duty did my my, my shift did it the best I possibly could and this is what happens you know and, and I wanted to kind of stem that that discussion around like the local, like the hero, the local hero kind of thing—it's really difficult for me to to, to accept that.
1: And um, you know, you spent—is it just over two weeks in hospital? And you know, you, you had young family and a, and a wife at the time. And it's not just you going through the the journey as well. Like, how how was um, how was the family affected at that time specifically? Yeah, it was very
0: it was very difficult for them. Um, not only because they had to deal with the fact that I was in hospital and and in critical condition and not knowing how this was going to play out at all so they had that kind of stress to deal with but but everything else that was going on and like I say the press were were relentless they were hounding fortunately they weren't hounding my my wife and my kids but everybody else which Mm. my wife had to kind of deal with to a certain extent Um, and my wife's amazing she was amazing throughout always has been with this and 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 we were very honest we, we decided really early on to be really honest with the kids without going into like the finer detail they didn't need to know that uh, but 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 being quite open and honest about this is what's has what's happened he went we got poisoned with what's called a nerve agent something obviously they didn't know what it was and, and we had to but we, we wanted to be honest with them so they understood so they weren't kind of caught out with anything that they they saw and my youngest daughter she it's in primary school so those discussions around what's happening would never come about in in her kind of little environment but my eldest she was a secondary and she was reading the news a lot as well she was very very inquisitive and wanted to kind of keep abreast of what was going on and so she yeah yeah, she found it the kids found it really difficult but we said all along you know when, when all this is well whilst all this is going on we will do our best to make keep them as stable as we possibly can give them as normal a life as we possibly can um regardless of where we are and what's happening we need to make that normal for them and and yeah. give them the space but also keep keep that honest kind of conversations going with them so that they're not kind of caught out and, and it seems and, to work as well they show great resilience i mean incredible resilience the, ch- the children do throughout this
1: yeah i got such admiration for you and your family my friend and you um i, I understand as you you left hospital you you didn't go home is that right yeah,
0: so uh, it's about a week, the first weekend I was in hospital. It was one of the hardest ones because uh, that was when uh, Sarah had been told by the by the police, And obviously the police were passing on this message to them to say, you can't go back to the house. Well, you can go back to the house, but you can't stay there. You've got to basically go and pack up a few things because we're worried about contamination. And that was difficult for them to take because they'd been there for four or five days whilst I was in hospital. And then suddenly they have been told, it's too dangerous to be there. You've got to leave. And, so, I mean, I never went back to our house. Um, I, I left hospital after two and a half weeks. And by this point they were in a in a rental house. Uh, and yeah, and that was really tricky to, to explain to the kids, you're not going home, we're, we're gonna have to, we're gonna be moved about. I mean, they, the first night they basically stayed in the B&B, then they went to a, like a holiday home. And then the day I was let out discharged from hospital, we then all met up in this rental house, which is a bit more long-term. And. Uh, when we decided, uh, you know, uh, for a whole host of reasons, we, we kind of decided we we can't go back to that house um, for so many kind of emotional reasons. Um, we had to explain that to the children. You know, we're not we're not going to go home. Um, we're going to have to buy a new house. And but don't worry, because the new house we will fill with all of our belongings. So it's new walls, new place, but it will feel like home. We will make it home. But it's only a few weeks after that or felt like a few weeks after that. that we have to tell them we can't do that. We've got to all of our belongings have to be destroyed because of contamination they couldn't they couldn't clean it and certify it safe it was just mm. too big a task so the easiest solution the most efficient way to deal with this problem was just to destroy everything we owned and that was including the children's belongings everything that they had so we had to then tell the children we can't do that we have to get a new house and we will have to fill it with with new things um and that was yeah that was really tough because that was when the point we felt like really our, our lives are completely out of our control now we are completely dependent on on other people to, to help us through this this process of trying to stabilize our lives again um it was really tricky it was really yeah. tricky but I, I talk about this and i i quite possibly sound a little bit hard done by and i don't mean to be but I, i'm also incredibly lucky and i never lose sight of how lucky i actually am because I'm still here and it doesn't matter where we live, but I'm here and the kids have still got their dad and my wife's still got a husband. So, uh, that was the most important thing. That's what we kind of focused on a lot.
1: Yeah. I, I, such admiration for you. And I, I think it, it'll only take a Googling of the story to realize that, you know, there was a, a later, a later poisoning. And unfortunately a lady by the yeah. name just did, did lose her life, which I imagine is, is what you're referring to there around. Yes, having. it is. Yeah. But, um, that's such admiration. And um, I don't know whether this is too personal a question, but I think there was a scene within the Salisbury Poisoning doc, Drama documentary that um, where almost after there's a, a paranoia about yourself and being contaminated and being around the kids. Was that yeah. something mentally in the early days that you had to really yeah. process and deal with? Yeah,
0: definitely. I had this complete paranoia, certainly for the first four or five days in the hospital. I was so paranoid about the children becoming ill and and my wife becoming ill Um, which i think is understandable and actually when we found out later that they found nerve agent in our house including my youngest daughter's bedroom traces of it but enough you know to cause a problem um it's a wonder how they didn't become ill um and i had an enormous amount of guilt i dealt with so much guilt that i had unknowingly you know, I didn't mean to do this. I didn't know it was happening, but I had taken this deadly substance back to my home, back to my family. And I felt this huge amount of guilt, huge amount of guilt that I'd taken it to the police station and I put in, you know, put my colleagues in danger as well. And uh, that was a really difficult thing to deal with. And when and, and the paranoia just kept going. So for the first few days, as I was. I was wasn't sleeping really I was very restless at night I couldn't sleep and my wife at home couldn't sleep and we were having text message conversations and I remember saying to her please just go and check on the kids go and check their eyes you know, go and check their eyes make sure their eyes look normal you know wake them up and check their eyes that was a yeah. that was a sensible thing to do but <laughs> that's how I was feeling I was so yeah. worried like right. you know in the mornings I you know my wife would text me and I'd say how are the kids how are the kids how are you feeling are you, you all right? how are your eyes are you feeling sick at all um and when Back, you know, back then, a few months down the line, I think it was July, I can't remember, when uh, Dawn and, and Charlie became ill, this paranoia hit me again. I was like, yeah. oh, my God, is this something... Firstly, is this something that I've done somehow? Have I caused that? Um, and suddenly I was thinking, this, is there some kind of really long... I mean, my, my symptoms were fairly delayed by a couple of days mm-hmm. to the point where I was actually hospitalized. But I suddenly was thinking, is there some kind of really long delay in yeah. this... Yeah. poison this nerve agent hitting you is this something something going to happen to my children and yeah I had to fight that for a long time mm. but as time went by it was obvious that actually they they, they kind of dodged that invisible bullet and um uh, and so that kind of that kind of paranoia and that guilt started to to move away but well the guilt didn't move away I, I still feel guilty now but my, obviously my family don't want me
1: to feel like that but it's one of those little niggling things you have in the back of your head um yeah, I understand or at least I can try to understand. But um, you know, what was the journey to your first day back at work? You know, what what were the, what were some of the things that you had to do to uh, to start your own recovery? Um, well, so this happened in March, and I didn't
0: go back to work. The first time, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, mm-hmm. Back in January, the following year, and I kind of got to to late summer into autumn, and I was like, you know what? I'm f- physically I'm okay. You know that that's kind of gone gone past me now, and things are starting to settle down. Home home wise, we've got, you know we've got another house now, and we're starting starting to feel like home. And I was like, I need to I need to try this. I need to I need to do this for myself to give it another go. And I said, but I need to get this year out of the way because this year has been crap. So let's get 2018 out of the way and I'll start fresh in the new year. And um, and I felt ready to try. I don't know if I felt ready to do it, but I felt ready to try that process of going back. And and I did, and I went back and I went back up to headquarters where we used to to see each other. And I tried that first and and I, I kind of realized pretty quickly something wasn't right this this mm. it just didn't feel the same again and 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 I was struggling and I think I was there for probably two or three months before I I, I went off and I started taking leave actually I started going can I just have a bit of holiday can I have a week's holiday mm. I was I wasn't well enough to be at work but I kind of didn't want to acknowledge that and I didn't want to accept it and and make it obvious that I was really struggling so I was like I'll just take a couple of weeks I've got so much holiday to take I'll take it there here and there and and I realized actually that's the wrong thing to do because I'm just fooling myself and it was becoming so difficult to to kind of go into that environment and pretend not pretend like nothing had happened but just carry on Um, and I yeah I I crashed and burned again after a few months of being there it was just it just became too difficult so I took then the summer again to try and reset and just try and get a bit of perspective and try and figure out what I had to do. To, and, and I wanted to try again, and I did. And each time I tried, and I tried three times until to go back, and each time just got shorter and shorter. The third time I went back, I knew when I went back, this yeah. isn't gonna work, but I have to try one more time. And I was there two weeks, three weeks. I was like, I, I can't be here. I can't, I can't do it anymore. Uh, and that acceptance is, it was really difficult um, to kind of acknowledge that dream of being a police officer which I, I had that dream since I was a teenager and then the reality of, of joining and all that stuff that you have to go through to get to there and then all the years that I did to build up my confidence and my skills and my abilities was kind of like ripped out from underneath my feet and that, and that was a really difficult thing to accept and I grieved for my job as well I did um, and then when I was told you know I, I asked to go down this route of uh, to explore the medical pension route not knowing how that was going to play out because you just don't know until you're there, and mm-hmm. but then to be told by the uh, the doctor, the person that the guy that assessed me to say, "Yeah, you're 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 incapable of doing this this job of being in the police," that was really difficult to take. Even though in a way it was probably the best outcome for me, it was still really difficult to to accept that that somebody was saying, following you no know, from a, from a professional assessment that no, you can't do this, and that that was that was tricky but you know i'm through needed, that now. but not the one that you wanted to hear right that's exactly it yeah that's exactly it. i never wanted that to happen i was gonna finish my career in the police and you know and do the 30 35 years whatever it is that i needed to do i was going to
1: finish that and probably it probably was always about the 40 by the time you got there <laughs> well yeah i still
0: don't i still don't really know what, what how many years i had to do i don't yeah. know i, I don't think anybody really knows what they've got to do anymore but yeah no that was the plan is to is to retire naturally at my retirement age in the police and and look back at my career in the police and and say look look what I look what I achieved and and it was taken from me to a certain extent but you know what it's fine it's it's I I can look back at it now and and I'm I'm content I'm comfortable with that decision and Mm. you know I don't grieve for the job anymore and and life is good you know that's the way I have to look at it now but yeah. I've had some really difficult times as well. You know, I'm saying that life is good, but I hit after a couple of years of this happening. So, but yeah, 2020, I mean, I hit my lowest point. I hit rock bottom mm. and it was affecting everything because I felt like I'd lost control of my life and work. The reason I tried so hard to make work work was because it, was, it felt like it was the only thing that I could control. It was the only thing that I would actually be able to keep hold of. By my fingertips, but keep hold of it and make that work. And everything felt like it was crumbling around me. You know, it had a massive impact on my on my marriage. Um, that that became incredibly difficult, and it was all because of me. It was all because of the way I was, and I would literally hit this this rock bottom moment. And um, fortunately, I had a kind of like a mirror moment. Um, and I can't really remember how it came about, but I I think like it came about because I was having issues. Um, you know, my, my marriage was felt like it was failing because of what was going on with me. And I had this mirror moment. And I think it's because I felt like I could lose even more than I've already lost. Um, and this moment of reflection where I kind of get, stopped giving myself a hard time, stopped grieving for my former self, started to embrace how I was feeling, acknowledge that I had I was suffering with depression and I, and I probably had PTSD and that was the biggest moment for me was that moment because I started then to learn about myself, learn from what had happened to me, started to yeah. talk, started to talk to my loved ones, started to tell them how I was actually feeling. And, and actually that changed me massively. And, and it was one of the biggest moment that was, that, that mirror moment that I had was huge for me because it, it started a, a process for me then of kind of starting to drag myself out of this pit that I found myself in. Uh, am i am i there yet no i'm not there yet there's like i said before there's no blueprint for it but you know you just um you just keep finding ways to get over things and yeah. once you've kind of got that base of resilience or, or start to build your resilience back up to it and start to be aware of your own emotional state and your own, own emotional feelings mm-hmm. you can kind of acknowledge that and you can kind of start to move forward a little bit i think and that's what that's where i am now
1: i keep saying this very huge admiration and um one of the things I've really learned from interviewing great people like yourself is, um, is the way that they choose, you know, the story going forward. It's, you can't control what's happened in the past. You can't control, you can't change it. But I think the difference between those that go on and is, is the way that they use it to mean something, to shape something, yes. to use it and give it back. And I'm really encouraged by the fact that you're wanting to um, use this and and, and share your story in the hope that you can help others like talk to us about some of the things that you really hope um to be well, what are you doing at the moment you're, you're you're joining podcasts and you're speaking where's that coming from and what are you hoping through, through that
0: yeah and I, you are absolutely right you've got to you've got to use your experiences and make the best out of them and, and i figured that out it took a while to figure that out um I had this, I felt like actually I, I, I have all the, the bad stuff that's happened. I have an opportunity here to do something with it. And if for myself as well, it was for myself. I had to, mm. it was either going to consume me in bitterness and negativity, or I flip it on its head and I turn this into something positive. And, and for me, that was the only option because I can't be negative and bitter and be consumed with this. This upset and this anger for the rest of my life. It's no good. So I had to, I had to get into that mindset of this is an opportunity. Use it. How I'm using it, I don't know yet. It's um it's be, it's early doors for me. I'm still exploring a number of things. Yes, I have, I am doing some talking. Um I did my first talk actually this week um to the banking industry. And it's literally just talking about it's, it's using my story. Yeah. Uh, around where I was mentally and emotionally, where I went to, and how I started to come back out of that. So, yes, the mm-hmm. story, my backstory, is very unique and it's very policey, But, but everything that I learned about myself is relevant to any any individual, any industry. Um, and so, I felt like I need to do something with this story. And if I can help just one person out of a hundred, even if it, yeah. even if they understand how they're feeling or they feel like. They, I say something and they go, you know what? That's how I felt. That's how I feel. Mm-hmm. So I'm not on my own with that. Um, or if it resonates with somebody in some way, then that's good, right? You know, that's that can only be a good 100%. thing.
1: And when we realise that the human experience is emotion, and yes, we have different experiences, but you know, love, fear, anxiety, worry, depression, all the things that you've you've talked about, they're human experiences. So whilst we might not be able to experience what you have when you talk about grieving everyone's had to grieve something at some point everyone's had something outside of their control and yeah I just I'm really encouraged I I, you I'm really excited to see how many um, lives that you're going to touch and, and make a positive difference in. it's it's going to be great my friend yeah I hope so you know what I did one talk this week and if I don't get the opportunity to do it again
0: i comfortable with that. That's fine. I've, I've done what I want to do. And you know what, going and doing a public, doing public speaking is something that I never okay. thought I would do. It so terrifies close. me. And I've done it, you know, albeit it was on a webinar, albeit it wasn't face to face, but I've, I've achieved something just in that itself. And I feel, I feel good about myself for that. So if it's anyone I do, then That's amazing.
1: It won't be, but I I take the point. And (laughs) and I saw your LinkedIn post earlier, which basically said that you were this career cop, you didn't dream of speaking, and yet you're realising that it's just simply a skill that you can develop, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's got it in them to to do something. And it's so
0: important as well to do something that is out of your comfort zone, I Mm -hmm. think, Um, because you build... You, you learn from that you learn from and you make yourself vulnerable I know you've talked about vulnerability before I know you did a, a short little piece on your podcast about vulnerability and being human but
1: mm.
0: I'm, I, I do truly believe that you, if you if you push yourself you put yourself out there and you kind of embrace those vulnerabilities and accept that it might not go right the first time or you might not succeed the first time but you do learn from that yeah. and when you learn from that you realize this is how, this is what I need to do. This is how it made me feel. This is what I need to do to not feel like that again, mm. if it does go wrong again. You build this with that resilience and actually you can then achieve what you want to achieve. And I, and I have, I've learned that. I have, you know, I truly believe that, that resilience and vulnerability are so important and they go hand in hand. You need both, you need to You need to embrace both, I think. Um There might be an argument against that, but it's, 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 how, it's how I felt, it's what I learned so, about myself. So it's kind of relevant to me, I think.
1: With um, with all that's gone on in the past, what gives you hope for the future? Um,
0: oh, that's a good question, Ryan. Um, my life has gone through something really, really difficult, and it's been very, very rocky. And we, as a family, myself, as an individual, and as a family, we have all dragged ourselves, dragged ourselves through it, and we come out on the other side. And I kind of think if we can we can get through adversity we can get through major setbacks and we're happy we're content we're content with our lives and um just makes you realize how strong we are as humans isn't it that you can go through something horrific and people go through things horrific all the time every single day and and you kind of you realize that people you know to to get through it there, there is usually only a couple of options to get through that you either drag yourself through that or the other option is that you don't um and where does that lead and most of the time we we drag ourselves through it for the sake of yourself for the sake of others and you can come out learning so much and you come come out feeling proud and happy and yes and that hope that if we can do this once god forbid i don't want it to happen again don't get me wrong i don't want to to go through this again but but you can get through some really horrific times yeah um and come out the other side and still feel you feel different i'm a different person to what i i I was before but um still feel good about yourself and still feel like you've achieved something and still feel like you know Mm. what we've we succeeded in getting through that really hard time and that's really important i think to look at it
1: like that i let my um I let my community know that you were going to come on and I asked them if they had any questions for you and, and one of the questions was um how did he get through it how did him and his family get through it and I haven't asked you that question to this point because I felt that like that would have been your answer it's binary isn't it you either do or you don't
0: people have asked that so it's a really good question and it's not actually I've asked it been asked it before it's a really good question it's not something I actually know how to answer really yeah. you just do it you just do it. The, the, what's the what's the alternative to not getting yourself through it? And that's what we kind of subconsciously thought. We never we never talked about it. We just got ourselves through it. And we, and, you know, we have two young children. And so our focus, our end goal was to make them feel as happy and safe as we possibly could regardless of how we felt we kept you know we were honest and open with them but we kept a lot of things from them they didn't know need to know the finer detail of all the, the things that, the stresses that we had to to fight and all the, the battles that we had um but we had that focus and it was of them and it was just getting them through it. and each other as well we just like you know what we, we have to do it and we did we we, we like i said we, before we, we dragged ourselves through it. i look back now and i just think i don't know how we did it but we did um, and quite often it was me, my wife dragging me along with her um, because she was the strong one for so long. Mm. And then I started to feel mentally stronger and she took a step back and then she dipped yeah. because it had taken its toll on her as well. Yeah. But you, we keep, we kept just propping each other up throughout the whole process and we still do that now. Um, but yeah, you can't, I can't really verbalise how we got through it other than what i've already said we just did
1: yeah no. it's just what
0: you do it's human nature to keep going and you go into survival mode and i went into survival mode in hospital um, when everything kind of went started to go really get really difficult and started to go really really wrong and the control of our lives had just been stripped from us mm-hmm. um, i went into survival mode but my my focus for my survival mode was my wife and kids um, yeah. I, I, cut, I cut out everything else you know all the the treatment that I was getting everything that wasn't important at that time just you just just become numb to it and you just cut it out and fo- and have that sole focus and and, and and yeah that that helped to get get through it and it's still difficult now you know we still have wobbles my wife has wobbles mm. I have wobbles still now you know but we talk about it we, we make a point yeah. now that's something that we never really really used to do is we have this shared experience and it's, yeah. both, it's, it's impacted us in similar ways, but we have, there, there, there are different ways that we show it, and but, but we talk about it, you know, we, we make time to talk about how we're actually feeling and just saying it, you know, mm. I'm having a bad day today, or I feel quite low today, and I don't know why, I feel really emotional today, I don't know why, I just cried at an advert, that happens to me, i become really <laughs> emotional. I can cry at advert. I cried at Creed too, the other week, yeah. I told my wife that, and she's yeah. like, really, you did? <laughs> I was like yeah I don't know why I just did (laughs) Uh, you know and it changes you but you know you start talking about it and actually it's quite it becomes quite funny um but yeah that's how we 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 managed to to get through it and we still are managing now but it's it's easier it was
1: I love that it's American Idol for me it's those sob stories of where they've come from and (laughs) (laughs) it gets me every time um I you know I I think too many people go through life feeling defined by their failures or the traumas. And I know that you're keen, uh, not necessarily to be defined by it, but to be able to use this experience and and shape your future. How do you want to be defined in the future? Or even now, how do you want the world to to see Nick Bailey? Um, It's difficult, isn't it? I suppose to
0: not let it define you because I am where I am now because of what happened and I'm doing or planning to do exploring what might my future because of what happened. And so there is, it does define you in that way. I don't want to be known as the poisoned cop Mm. for the rest of my life. Um, But if I am, I am, but I have to take the positives out of everything that's happened. Um, I'd like to think that I would be, defined or seen as someone who's pretty strong who's somebody who's quite resilient albeit I didn't feel that myself Mm. um it's brave enough to talk about it brave enough to be really honest about how it affected me emotionally and mentally and and I am I I can talk about that all day about how it affected me and and be very brutally honest about it Mm. um because I think it's important to do that I think it's important to have those discussions and be open and honest about how we're feeling because you bottle those kind of things up it just becomes toxic doesn't it and creates this kind of feeling of tension and negativity around you and around everybody else so you need to you need to be open about it it's really difficult to do sometimes but you have to do it so I don't, I don't really know how I want to be defined other than what I've already said I think I don't know it's a tricky one I'd just like to feel content as well, quite happy in myself and feel content. And I'm starting to feel like that, which is good. good. It's nice to start to feel kind of at peace with myself.
1: Good. Yeah. Good. What does the phrase always better than yesterday mean to you? I, I was hoping you weren't going to ask me difficult questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, what does it mean
0: to me? Um, it, I suppose it means to me that you go through life, you make mistakes, you learn from your mistakes and everything that you achieve or you have achieved, you can take something away from and you can build on it and it can develop you and it can make you stronger, it can make you more resilient, it can make you a better communicator. Everything that you do you can learn from and um, we're never perfect. Humans are not perfect. We can't be perfect Um, but you can be you can strive to be better than you think you are or better than you want to be. And I think that's I suppose that is what it means to me, I think.
1: I just encourage anyone that's watching or listening at this point just to just to search out to connect with Nick. If you are a team leader, if you are in an organization that wants to look after the health and well-being of your people get an engaging speaker and make sure that nick is top of your list make sure you go and contact him bring him in because as you've heard in the last half an hour to 40 minutes this is um this is an incredibly deep conversation of which i imagine when you put a, a group of people together sharing experiences can be life-changing and profound so please do forward this on to someone you know who is in a position to influence many people and be sure to get Nick in, whether that's in person or online. Nick, thank you for taking time out of your day, my friend. No, thank Very, you. It's been an really absolute cool. pleasure. I really appreciate your time, right? Could you leave us with a final thought from your good self?
0: Um, okay. I would say just stop. We all have flaws. We're not perfect. We are who we are. It's counterproductive to give yourself a hard time, Give yourself a break, embrace who you are, how you changed for whatever reason, if you have changed or you feel like you've changed and just be happy and content with with what you've got and who you are and shape you, you can shape your own future just off that, that embracing of what you've become and what you want to become. Stop giving yourself worse, a hard time. Head. It's something I did a lot of. I gave myself a hard time for a long time and I stopped doing it and I felt so much better for that now.
1: I love it. Such powerful words. Thank you so much, my friend. No problem at all. Thank you. There you go. Episode 134 with Nick Bailey. What what an incredible conversation. What an incredible human being. What an incredible family. I really hope that you've been able to connect to the heart of that message and I'd just love to know what is it that you're going to take away from that podcast let me know, either share it on social media, tag me in at Ryan B. Hartley, or email me RyanBHartley at gmail.com however you'd like to get in contact with me, just make sure you do I love hearing from good people like you who listen or watch on the YouTube I'd just love to know what you're now going to go on to do, that will ultimately be a legacy of this episode which is what continues to inspire me to have conversations with great people like nick bailey please do share it with a loved one help spread this message and as i said in the in the interview itself if you know of someone who is in a position of uh, bringing in guest speakers make sure that nick is top of that list i appreciate you thank you for listening as always and if this is the first time that you've listened to our podcast Thank you for making it to the very end. I will never take your time for granted. And I hope that the other 450 plus episodes of this podcast serve you in some way. I'm Ryan Hartley, the host. And I'm grateful for your time. Always love.